Uh, we have been talking about David. If you, if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, pull them out. You can look on the screen. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, we've been talking about looking at the life and case study of this uh, king named David. And we've been looking at him from the time he was young. And now we are in his power years. He's going to become king today. And then when I come back from Peru, we're going to be looking specifically at what it looks like uh, to serve the Lord in your older years and what can go wrong and what can go right. And so we've been working through these life stages. And what I've told you is life is kind of like Super Mario Brothers. And I know that's super spiritual, so keep that in the back of your head. In that, you have to go through each level. And when you don't, or if you, anyone play Mario Brothers growing up, Super Mario Brothers 1, I mean 2 and 3 and all the others were okay, but 1 was the absolute classic of classics and you could warp to the next level. And when you do that, what happens if you're in your 40s in this room this morning? What happens is you're not prepared for the next stage and you fall short and you get to the next level and you die quickly because you don't know how to play the game. And life is kind of like that. There are these stages that God takes you through and when you warp past them, numerically, like you can get over here in a certain life stage and you can look the part, but if you haven't worked the process, it's not going to be pretty. And so David is working the process as he's in the wilderness this morning. And he ends up in his power years. We're going to go through this idea of kingship and we're going to cover some ground. But as the story finishes, he is full-fledged in his leadership. He now has influence. He has respect. But the road to get there has been windy, rocky, and uphill. But it starts really even before Goliath. We started week one where the story doesn't start. Because for David, it starts in middle school. Samuel, the prophet, shows up at his home. He's on a secret mission to find a king to anoint the next king of Israel because King Saul is not cutting it. And so he tells David's father and family, invite all your family to a special sacrifice. And he, and he has this idea, as soon as I see the son, because he knows it's going to come from this family, as soon as I see the son uh, that's going to be king, God's going to tell me, I'm going to know it. And so he sees one of his brothers who looks the part, and God says, that's not the one. And he goes through all of the brothers, if you know scripture, and the same narrative, they kind of looked apart, the but they're not the one that God has chosen. And then Samuel's frustrated. He says, are there any more children in this family? Are there any more young men in this family? And so David's in the fields. He's a shepherd, 13 years old. And then, Saul, or then the Samuel sees him, realizes this is what God wants to do. He is small in stature, but he's a good-looking kid. He's got beautiful eyes, the Bible says. And God says, this is the man, the future man for the job as he's just 13 years old, voice hasn't changed, no mustache, not an ounce of manliness on his body. But God said, this is the guy for the job. And so he becomes king a long time later, but the process is messy. This is kind of what the process looks like. Two years later after that, he's 15 years old. What does he do? He kills Goliath. The next seven years, Saul is still the king. He's living in somewhat of the king's good graces. He ends up marrying the king's daughter. He becomes best friends with the king's son. But the king gets jealous. He becomes a fugitive after that. For the next eight years, he's on the run. All this time, God chose him for something special, and he's learning these lessons in the wilderness. And so here's what he's learning. Here's what I want you to write down. Here's what I want to be a sticking point. 
for us this post-Thanksgiving Sunday. What David learns in the wilderness that prepares him for kingship is this simple principle that Rick Warren brings to light in a best-selling book many years ago. And I want you to hear me say this. It's simple, but it's true. David learns this reality in the wilderness. It's not about me. How many of you had that slap you in the face through the school of hard knocks? It's not about me. I thought it was about me, but it was not about me. And as soon as I learned that, then I could grow. What David learned in the not about me process is that it's God's will, God's way, and God's time. And so David lives that out in the wilderness. He makes mistakes. We talked about that um, last week. He makes some mistakes along the way. But he starts learning this thing that's going to guide his future leadership, that it's not about me. It's God's will, God's way, God's time. And even when he has the chance to make it about him, in a way that most of us probably would have walked down the road that he chose not to walk down, even when he has opportunity after opportunity to make it about him in his own timing, he says, no, God's will, God's way, God's time. There, there was a king who was after blood, and he was after blood because I think he had some mental issues, he had some spiritual oppression in his life, and he had some massive insecurities that he walked in. He was friends with David, and he decides he's jealous of David, and he, so he chases after David in the wilderness. And in one of those encounters, this happens a couple of times, David catches him red-handed. He has Saul for his taking. And the Bible is true, and because it's true, it has some weird stories in it because real life has weird stories. And so one of those occasions, David is sitting in a cave and he's hiding, and it's dark, and he has his men with him. And as the story goes, Saul is chasing after him, doesn't know where he's at, but he has to go to the bathroom. It's just a real story. And so he has to go to the restroom, and 3,000 years ago, that was in a cave, no modern plumbing, and his eyes haven't adjusted to the light. Saul's doing his business. That's what the Bible says, right? He's doing his business. And then David looks at him, and and everyone's freaking out in the cave, and they're looking at David. They're like, David, this is it. I mean, I don't know how strong Saul is, but in this vulnerable position, God is delivering this king into your hands just like he said he would. And in 1 Samuel 24, 4, you can see the scripture for yourself. And the men said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be seem good to you. And then David arose stealthily and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He wanted Saul to know something. I could have killed you and I have chosen not to. And David's probably tempted beyond all reason in this moment. His, his endorphins are flowing. He's about to follow through, and he sneaks up on him, and he says, no, I'm not going to take matters into my own hand. And so he lets Saul finish what Saul's doing, get on his donkey, and then David appears. You, you just can't make this up, right? This is too bizarre not to be true. David appears at the head of the cave, and he makes it known, and Saul's heart sinks. He makes it known, I could have taken your life in a very vulnerable position and moment. And I cut off a piece of your robe so you knew that I was this close. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hands shall not be against you. And so then time goes by, he has another opportunity. And he sees 
Saul's army in the desert. And it's a wide open area. And so David sent spies to track Saul. And they stake out his camp. And Saul's camped right in the middle of his army, around 3,000 men. And he has a spear in the ground by his head. And as the sun went down, David couldn't resist. He told his friends, I have a bad idea. Would you be willing to join me? And you know how that works. If you have a bad idea, there's always a bad friend that's willing to join you. And so David in the wilderness and his friend go into the army by night and they sneak up on Saul. They move past the camp. They get to the center of the camp with a spear by Saul's head. And then David's friend whispers something into his ear. He says, again, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now is the time to strike. This is your moment, David. Let's take care of business. This guy has been chasing you. This guy has been treating you poorly. This guy has been trying to mess up the plans, purposes, and will of God because you have been anointed king. And the friend says, let me just take that spear and just give me one crack at him. I will stab him in one shot. And the last thing Saul's ever going to do is he's going to see your face. And he's going to know that God has anointed you. And when the army wakes up, everyone's already behind you, David. Don't even worry about it. Everyone's already behind you. They don't want to follow this guy. They just have to. As soon as they realize Saul's dead, they're going to all bow to you. They're going to become your followers. And then verse uh, 26, chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, verse 9. You don't have this on your screen. I'm just going to read it to you. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who, put, uh, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David refuses. In fact, this is something worth writing down. I heard this this week. This is good. David refuses to violate the will of God to receive the blessing of God. Think about your own life. David refuses to violate the will of God to receive the blessing of God. And he says, the reason I will not do this is because this is not about me. David refused to replace what God had put in place because it's God's will, God's way, God's time. This is an incredible story about what it looks like to survive and even thrive in the wilderness of life. Seven more years of conflict. Eventually, King Saul and Jonathan are killed by their enemies on the battlefield. David, instead of being glad, because most of us, wouldn't we be glad when someone's chasing us, trying to kill us? Instead of being glad, he mourns both of their deaths. David's running for his life in the wilderness, but he knows, again, it's not about him, so he's sad that God's king has died, that God's king has failed. Judah declares David king, and so there are these 12 tribes of Israel. This is a long history lesson, I know, but it's worth it to get to where we're going. There are these 12 tribes of Israel. Judah declares David as king, and you think that would be the end of the story, but the 11 tribes uh, call up Saul's lineage to be king, and so now there's more conflict. It's been going on for years, and it's seven more years. It's not four more years. It's seven more years and there's conflict between the house of David and the house of Saul. And David just tries to stay out of the way while everyone is saying, claim what's yours. You had your time. You waited patiently. God's not expecting you to do more than this. And so he says, Saul's gone. Jonathan's gone. It's your turn. Samuel already said when you were 13 years old this was going to happen. And instead, David stays in the background. God's will, God's way, God's time. And the man that was king over the 11 tribes, his name is Ish-bosheth, 
is finally murdered by two brothers who sneak into the camp and take him out while he was sleeping. You guys notice the theme here? Going to the bathroom, sleeping. I mean, they're just a, a tricky group, aren't they? They don't have much real courage, and they think what they've done is so great. And so here, here's what they did. This is very gory. It's the Old Testament. Uh, when you wanted to prove that something was had happened, you had to physically prove it because you couldn't just take your cell phone out and take a picture of it you know, and put it on social media. You had to prove it. It's like, I did this. Well, prove it. Here's how they would prove it. They would take the person's head. You ready? And they would do something pretty gory. They would cut it off. They would pack it, and they would bring it to you, and they'd go, um, we killed this person, and the proof is, here's the head. And so they think they've done a great thing for David. They take Ishbosheth's head, they cut it off, they bring it before David. They probably think that they're going to be greatly rewarded because now David's woes are finally over. But in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8, this is David's response. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and in his offspring. But David answered, these two men, he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity when one told me, behold, Saul is dead. So this already happened. People told him that Saul was dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him, which is the reward I gave him for such good news. Now check this out, verse 11. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you uh, from the earth, and David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hung them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it at the tomb of Abner at Hebron. How many of you have never read the Old Testament? You're going, man, I'm just learning today that my faith has a violent side to it. And it's okay because this was what God was doing in this time for his purposes. David's big moment. David's big moment. He should have been celebrating. He should have had a party. But instead of celebrating, he brings justice. And finally, in the pinnacle moment, the tribes all come together and they say this to David. And this is significant, so stay with me. This is the last piece of scripture. Chapter 5, 2 Samuel, verse 1. Finally, the moment's come. He's 30 years old now. He's king. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Here's why that's significant. Twelve tribes, one follows David, right? Now, when they know the cards are on the table and the deck is stacked, now they are saying, hey, we're excited for you. These elders are excited. These are the same elders that would have been following this king's son, this king who wanted David dead, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it is, you, it is you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you should be shepherd of my people Israel, and you should be my prince over Israel. So the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David over king of, of, of Israel. And this is significant because he makes this covenant with God's people when 11 out of the 12 tribes were following someone else. And so here's the deal with the covenant. It's the best interest of both parties, and it's selfless, and it's sacrificial. It's like what God calls us to in marriage. It's not a contract. It's two different parties saying, I'm going to give everything for the betterment of the narrative. And David, after being chased 
after being set up, after being betrayed, after having people who should have been following him a long time ago not follow him, he says in his maturity, now that I'm king, I'm gonna make a covenant with God's people and we're gonna do this thing differently. This is incredible maturity. This is maturity, had he not been in the wilderness, you wanna know why you go through some hard things? Had he not been in the wilderness of life, this isn't maturity that he would have had at 15. This isn't maturity that he would have had at 22. God used all of these things in his life to get him where he wanted to take him. At this moment, he makes a covenant with the people at Hebron. And David's word is law because now he is the man in charge. And instead of exacting revenge, he makes a covenant Verse four, and David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So now there's a new sheriff in town, right? Here's a few points that I want us to walk away from. And I want you to write these things down. When it comes to leadership, because we've been going through the teen years, we've been going through the early wilderness years, and now we walk through all of that narrative to get you to the place where you now see a man in his power years as king. So what does it look like to live out that life stage? Because all of us have a mark of leadership on our life. It just looks differently. The context is different. But the first idea is this, that the greatest mark of leadership in your life, the greatest mark of leadership is what we do with our influence. Write that down. You can fill it in. If you want to know where you're at in your leadership, in your home, in your work environment, in your community, the greatest mark of leadership is what you do with, with your influence. Plato said this. I actually found this on a Facebook scroll. Plato said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. And so if you think, well, I don't know if that's really that big of a deal. How many of you maybe are not the king or not the queen? How many of you have a boss? No one? Everyone's self-employed or unemployed. This is concerning going into kingdom builders. Self-employed, we can deal with that. Unemployed, it's gonna be a hard year for new life, right? How many of you had a boss? How many of your bosses in the room right now? Anybody? Right, that's awkward, okay, so we're gonna get more awkward. How many of you have ever had a bad boss? <laughs> and there's about a third of you that are being honest. Who in here hasn't had a bad boss, right? I know about 12 people on staff at New Life that have a really bad boss. <laughs> there are different kinds of bad bosses. The greatest mark of leadership is what you do with your influence. The measure of a man is what he does with power. Here, here's how I would define a bad boss. As far as I've looked, I've had female bosses and male bosses. The two worst types of bosses I've ever had is the narcissistic type, because that never goes well. That's obvious. And that's Saul. And then the insecure boss who wants everyone to love them, but then works behind the scene and sabotages. And again... That's Saul. So David gets it. The greatest mark of leadership is what you do with your influence. He gets to the point of the covenant time. He gets to the point of now it's 2 Samuel. He gets to the point where now he's not 15, 22, 25 years old. He's 30 years old. He becomes king. This was a 17-year waiting process. And now he gets to own this reality that the greatest mark of leadership is what he's going to do with his influence. He's not going to be an insecure leader. He's not going to be a narcissistic leader. He's not going to be like his predecessor. He's not going to be like Saul because seemingly normal people can go absolutely nuts when they're giving a title or responsibility. True? You ever known someone that you thought was really normal and then they get promoted? 
And you're like, I, I thought I knew that person, and it cut, turns out I didn't know them at all. Because now that they have power, and they have the Lord of the Rings, they're precious, all of a sudden it's like, what happened to that person? Greatest mark of leadership is what we do with our influence. How about this question? How do we respond when we realize we're the most powerful person in the room? What do we do? Maybe it's a boardroom, a classroom, a locker room, a living room. And it dawns on you, all eyes are on me and I'm in charge. It's in those moments that say so much about you. Because here's the deal about leadership. Here's the deal about being a king. And and we'll kind of go, and I'll explain this in a second, lowercase king. I'm not saying you're literally going to be a king. There's only one mayor in Aberdeen and he comes to the second service, okay? So um, there's not a lot of actual kings because the, the mayor in Aberdeen, that's the most powerful position in the entire world, just in case you didn't know that. But, uh, but there are two types of things that can happen. Few things, this is the power of leadership, few things are more disturbing than somebody in authority who leverages that authority for the benefit or to the neglect of people that they are over, right? That's something where we all can agree and come alongside that principle and go, man, that's just disgusting when that happens. But, but on the flip side, few things are more inspiring than leaders who say no to something that they can say yes to for the sake of those who follow them, who actually look like Jesus in their servant leadership. It is a power that can be used for good and bad. That's what influence is. And none of us really knows the button we push or the direction we shift to until someone actually hands us the keys to the kingdom. You can theorize, and how many of you have just like never been a boss, but you've always hated your boss? You can theorize, if I was in that position, then I would dot, 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 dot. If I had that power, and I had that authority, then I would do it differently. And I would say to you humbly, as someone who leads for a living, you don't actually know what you would do until you have the keys to the kingdom. And David makes the right decision. David didn't fully know what he would do when he was out of the wilderness until he got the crown at this point of the story. Here's another principle to write down about leadership. Leadership is always stewardship. Leadership is always stewardship. There are different places in the Bible when the word king comes up and it's lowercase But when it refers to Jesus Christ, the king of kings, it's always uppercase. And so here's what leadership looks like. Here's what godly leaders understand. I am a king, right? What's your context? I am a king or I am a queen. But here's what godly leadership understands when it stewards what God has given them. I am a king, but I am not the king. David is always the lowercase king in the narrative. That yes, I had this prophesied over me an anointed king at 13 years old, but I didn't know how it was all going to play out. I didn't know how long I was going to be in the wilderness. I didn't know how many people were going to have to die around me, but I knew that God was faithful, and I always knew this, that I'm the lowercase king, and I submit to the true king because I'm a steward of what God has given me. Here's the definition of stewardship. It's utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. So 30 years old now, David gets the call up to the majors. His time has come. 
He's not 13. He's 30, and it's messy. And the reality is this. Our our lives aren't going to probably look like that. But all of us, all of us are called to some form of leadership, and it always requires stewardship. On the most practical level for, for every man that's in church this morning, that's either a husband or a father or hopefully both, you're probably not going to have this moment where the elders come affirm your kingship in Aberdeen. And so for you, it's going to be much more simplistic, but not any less important because God has affirmed you leader of your home. You have these small children and you have a wife that looked to you to lead. And are you going to lead well? Are you going to lead your family like David? Or are you going to lead your family like Saul? And God has given you this stewardship, this place of fertile soil to nurture it and see the next generation. I mean, what's more important? You want to know what was really wrong in culture? We can find about 50 things that's wrong in culture. But I'm telling you this, if you actually want to change culture, then change the home. If you actually want to change culture, then own kingship. Because if godly men are leading their wives and their children in a way that puts Christ on display, I can promise you with certainty, things will change. Things will change in culture because leadership is stewardship. And the last one is this, that even kings, David is king. David's the greatest king. But even kings are accountable. That they are the lowercase in the narrative of scripture David has this call of becoming king despite a ton of opposition and I want to close with this idea I don't, I don't think that we have spent enough time explaining who Saul really is at best Saul is mentally unstable in fact I've wanted to do something for a while and I get to do it today I'm going to diagnose him anyone have a counseling background Email me your thoughts. Here's my diagnostic. Saul, nothing wrong with this. Don't hear me wrong that I'm somehow criticizing mental health. But Saul, to me, was unequivocally bipolar. Saul was all over the place. And so if, if you don't really know what that means, you think, well, sometimes you have good points and sometimes you have low points, and so that, and that's bipolar. That, that's not bipolar. There's a research abstract from 2003 that I went over because I Googled what was King Saul's diagnostic. And there were a lot of people that have taken a stab at this, but this is one I liked best. Most likely, Saul had manic episodes with psychotic phases, major depression with psychotic features, mixed episode, bipolar 1 disorder, which is a heavy diagnosis, and nonspecific psychotic disorder. And so all of that to say this, Saul, no matter how you look at him, obviously he was also influenced by the enemy. He had demonic influence over his life for the things that he tried to accomplish for the bad. But there's no question, when you look at Saul, Saul wasn't your average bear. Saul didn't fit into the 98 percentile of the population that he was around. He had some things going on with his mental health that were horrible. And if you've had some of these things, you know, man, this is something that God has to deliver you from and that doctors have to, you know, help you with in your life. You understand how serious this is. But David was dealing with something that wasn't at the average bear. He, he was extreme in how he operated. I mean, he would have these manic stages where he would go off. And David was his friend, and David was his enemy, and David was his friend, and David was his enemy. But write this down, kingship, and put it on the screen. Kingship 
is always accountable. Even kings are accountable. David refuses to violate the will of God to receive the blessing of God when he had every means to justify his actions because Saul had issues. And he says, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I know Saul's not who he's supposed to be, but I'm gonna wait on the ball, wait on the Lord. And then Saul dies, and Jonathan dies, and someone rises up in the 11 tribes, and he has every reason at this point to do what he needs to do. And he says, I'm gonna wait on the Lord because I'm not gonna violate the will of God to receive the blessing of God in my life. And David does something that we need to walk away with. He submits to God's will, God's plan, God's timing. So what about you? How patient are you this Thanksgiving? What I've come to understand, because I am one of the least patient people on the planet, if you don't believe me, just drive in front of me. I got flipped off in Fargo yesterday. And I'm telling you, I could like give you a laundry list of things I've done wrong. I did nothing wrong. Before the glory of God, I followed this guy for about two blocks with my sons in the car. And then I realized, what am I doing? <laughs> and so then I turned. I don't even know why I just confessed that. I just felt guilty. But I'm, I'm like one of the lead. I didn't even do anything. I literally, I shouldn't even told that story. I literally did nothing. I was just in my pride. Like I wanted to like stop and say, what did I do to offend you that you would give me your best finger on your hand, right? And, and so I'm like one of the least patient people on the planet. And when I drive, it, it manifests. I have to surrender that to the Lord. Waiting is not just a burden to get us to our final destination. That's how I see it. I don't, I don't know how you see it. That's how I see it. It's like, oh, God's calling me to wait, and it's a burden to my final destination. Waiting is what makes us ready when we get there. I was coached in the 90s when you could still yell at kids, and it was okay. Most coaches would yell at you in the 90s in high school basketball, and they would always say the same cliche as they would comb their hair back like Pat Riley. They would always say this, trust the process. Or they'd say, Rodney, play a little defense. Trust the process. Run the play. I know it doesn't make sense when you're putting it right here, but in the grand scheme of things, I have a vision to get you where you need to go. Trust the process. Because God is not just taking you somewhere. He's making you into someone. And what God is saying to the kings and the queens and the future of new life as we get to the power years in this narrative of David is he's saying what he says to everyone who he calls unto himself. He's looking at his bride through Jesus Christ and he's saying, trust me. In a world where you can't trust anything, trust me. And if you don't learn to trust God before you're king, you're never gonna trust God when you are. That's just the truth. Jesus puts this on display. Praise man, you can come back up. He does not want to do some things that God is calling him to do. And he's sitting in the garden. He's about to give his life up. He's in the center of the biggest moment of the ministry. He's living in angst. He's about to do the wrath of God for sin, to take on the cross. He's so upset that he's sweating blood. And what does he say? He says, God, take this cup from me, but not my will, not my will, but your will. It's this attitude of surrender. Even kings are accountable, and Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's waiting obediently as your king. And now we're going to start heading towards Christmas. 
I've got one more left in the tank when David has this encounter with Bathsheba in his older years at 52 years old. And then we're going to go to uh, the Bethlehem narrative, and, and David's the one that's taking us there this year. But I just want to challenge you with that idea. What does it look like to be obedient and to surrender your small case, lowercase k, to the King of Kings? What does it look like to wait on the Lord and say, not my will, but your will? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And for us in this space and online and downtown, you've given us some type or some form of leadership and help us to steward it for your glory. We thank you for dying on the cross for rising from death and giving us new life. And our commitment to you is to wait patiently upon you. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.